Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going good when things seem to be going well. We don't pray the way we should. So I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, so please don't raise your hands. But the question I have before us this morning is, how many of us can actually say we have a thriving, dynamic, healthy prayer life? Don't raise your hands. I want to ask you two questions this morning related to Daniel chapter 9. And and I think Daniel chapter 9 answers these questions for us. And this is the first question related to prayer. Maybe you've thought about this before. Why pray if God is sovereign and he's got it all figured out? I mean, if God's in charge and God's going to accomplish his will and he's going to do it, why even pray? If God's got it all figured out and God's going to do whatever he's going to do regardless of us, why pray? Now, there's a fallacy in that question. Yes, God is sovereign and God is in control. But do we find anywhere in the Bible that says God is going to do something regardless of us? Did you ever stop to think that maybe God accomplishes his plans through us and the way that he does that is through our prayers? Now, we can't control God. We can't manipulate God. We can't arm twist God. We can't get God to do what we want him to do. But we can pray with confidence because we know that if anything's going to happen, if anything's going to get done, God is the one that's going to do it because he is sovereign. So we don't change to, or we don't pray to change God's mind. We pray so God can change our hearts and minds to his purposes. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Have you ever thought about that? God knows what you need before you ask him. So you may be thinking, well, then why ask God? It's not as if God says, wow, you're really, really, you're struggling with that? I did not know that. That's a newsflash to me. No, God knows what we need before we even ask. So if God is sovereign, God's got it all figured out, and God's going to do what he's going to do, why do you pray? You see, the most important thing about prayer is not in our asking, it's in the relationship. You see, God is our Heavenly Father, and he wants us to draw near to him in relationship. And so there's the joy in the asking, there's the joy in the coming to God, and we pray with confidence because God is sovereign. So the first question we ask is really kind of a silly question. Why pray if God is sovereign? It's really kind of a silly question. We pray because God is sovereign. But here's the second question I think most of us struggle with. The second question is this. How should I pray? I mean, the first question was why, but most of us probably struggle with how. How do I do it? And I think it's beneficial for us to look at the actual recorded prayers in Scripture. Because when you look at the actual prayers that are prayed by people in the Scripture, you get a powerful pattern of how we should pray. And that's what we see here in Daniel chapter 9. Now you remember, we've been in Daniel for a few months now. He's a man of prayer. 
Back in Daniel chapter 6, remember he got in trouble for praying three times a day with his window open. It caused him to get thrown into the lion's den. And so we've seen Daniel as a man of prayer, but now we actually see how he prayed. So for those of you that struggle with prayer, don't have to raise your hand. For those of us that want to know how to pray better, for those of us that just want a, a more dynamic, healthy prayer life, and I think all of us will probably fit the bill here, I want us to look at Daniel this morning to see a powerful pattern of how we can actually copy or take what Daniel does here and apply it to our own prayer lives. And so what I want us to see this morning are four overarching issues. We're not going to look at all of Daniel chapter 9 this morning. We're saving the best for next week. Just pray for me because I'm confused. I'll just admit to you. Next week's sermon, we know, I'm not sure where it's going to land, but uh, i got a week to get it ready. This sermon comes this week. We're just going to look at the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. But let's examine four things here this morning about prayer that we see from Daniel's prayer himself and from Daniel's life. And here's the first one. Let's look at the reason for why Daniel prays. What's the reason for his praying? So let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We see the reason for Daniel's prayer. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asariah, whatever, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, what prompts Daniel to pray? What's going on here? What's Daniel doing? If you notice from verse 2, what's he reading? He's reading the book of Jeremiah. He's reading his Bible. And so we see the basis or the reason for Daniel's prayer is because he learned something about the scriptures that was going to happen to Israel. Something that's going on in his very own time. Now remember the story of Daniel. What happened to Daniel? When he was a teenager, he was yanked from Israel to go live in Babylon. And remember the, the indoctrination period he had for three years, and then um, he rose into the ranks to become a leader. And so God said, Israel, you are going to go into captivity for 70 years. And so the question that Daniel's struggling with, and maybe the people that are living in Babylonian captivity, is when is this going to end? How long are we going to be in captivity? And so what did Daniel actually read in Jeremiah? It says here, and this, I find this amazing, Daniel is actually reading the Bible. In the, you have somebody in the Bible reading the Bible. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. What does he read? Well, probably Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This is what God promised in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. What does Daniel read here? Daniel reads very clearly from the book of Jeremiah, this is going to last 70 years. God has got his timetable. At the end of 70 years, you're going to get to go back to Israel. He may have also seen in Jeremiah 29.10 the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this 
place. Now, Daniel's an old man at this time. And probably, according to history and scholarship, it's probably year 66 or year 67 in that 70-year plan. So we're at the tail end of it. Daniel's at the tail end of it. He sees about three or four more years before God would come true on this promise. And so here's the question again. If God has promised in the book of Jeremiah that it's going to be 70 years, then why does he pray? If he knows it's going to be 70 years, if God's got it all figured out, if the prophecy says in 70 years you're going to go back, why does Jerah, or why does Daniel pray? Daniel could have had this attitude where he said, oh well, God's sovereign, God's in control, Kisera, Kisera, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. It doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't matter if I witness. I'm going to be a hyper-Calvinist. I'm just going to go with the punches, and I'm just going to let God be on his throne. God's in control. I don't have to do anything. What does he do? No, instead, he prays. Now, let me say this very clearly, especially at Emmanuel, for those of us that believe in the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for laziness, for lack of prayer, and lack of evangelism. Never do you see in the Bible, just because God's sovereign, are we ever told to just sit back and and not do anything. We are called to pray. We are called to witness. We are called to work. We're called to serve. We're called to do missions. We're called to do evangelism. We're called to do all these things because God is sovereign. God is going to get his will done, but he uses us to do it. And prayer is not something that arm twists God and gets God to do our agenda. Prayer is a relationship. And so prayer is a journey, a journey of joy. You enter into a relationship with God and prayer draws us closer to God. And, and here's really what happens in prayer. We don't change God's mind. God changes us to be more like Jesus. So let me be real practical. I'm going to try to be as practical as I can this morning with prayer because I know we all struggle with it. Daniel prayed with what? An open Bible. So let me be real practical. We too should pray with an open Bible. How many of us, when we pray, it becomes like a mindless exercise? You start spouting off your dear Lord's, bless me, and next thing you know, your mind wanders, you're off on a tangent, and next thing you know, you're either asleep, you're confused, you're thinking about your laundry list, you're thinking about your to-do list, and you forget to pray because your mind is wandering. Anybody want to raise their hand? Okay. It's okay to raise your hand at this point. I'm going to raise my hand. Okay? Both of them. But if you pray with an open Bible, it directs your praying. You can pray exactly what you read right back to God. And you know you're not going to be wrong when you pray the Scriptures right back to God. Or you've just read something in the Scriptures, pray it back in your own words. It gives you focus when you pray with an open Bible to to think about the things you've just read and to give those back to God. Now, the first issue we see this morning is the reason the reason for the prayer. And Daniel does it because, number one, he reads the scriptures. Number two, he knows that God is sovereign. And so the Bible informed his praying in the same way the Bible should inform our praying. But secondly, what I want us to see this morning is the attitude. Number one was the reason. Let's look at the attitude of Daniel when he's praying. What's his attitude? What's his posture? What, 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 how does he approach praying? Well, let's look at verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord God 
seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Do you see the, um, the passion that Daniel has here? It's not just a Lord bless me kind of casual flippant prayer. No, he's passionate. He's a humble man. It's not this real uh, quick dear Lord prayer at the end of the day where we, we say about a five minute prayer and then we fall asleep. No, he is, he is contrite. He's humble. He's fasting. He's pleading with the Lord. He's um, seeking him. And that word seeking the Lord or turning his face to the Lord is a very strong expression in the Hebrew language that means that he's just pleading with God. He's exhausting himself before God. He's crying out to God. And notice what he calls the Lord. I turn my face to the Lord God. The Lord God. Adonai. The sovereign God. The God who is in charge. And so Daniel is bowing himself in humility and in contrition and and passion. And and he's coming before the Lord God. And he's in sackcloth and ashes. Now we don't wear sackcloth and ashes in our day, but it was a symbol of of mourning. It was a symbol of desperation. It was a symbol of, of coming before God and saying, God, I need you. I passionately need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm coming before you. And so the attitude that Daniel has is he's not flippant. He's not lazy. He's not disorganized. He is passionately, humbly bowing himself before God in desperation, saying, God, you've got to move. God, you've got to act. God, I'm coming before you in humility. Let me again be very practical here with you this morning. Let me just tell you a little bit about posture when praying. When I have my quiet times alone, I kneel when I pray. I'm not saying there's anything magical about kneeling, but when you kneel, it puts you in a posture of dependence. It puts you in a posture of humility. You're, you're physically putting yourself in a position of showing dependence upon God. Also, when I pray, this is just a hint, I pray out loud. And the reason I pray out loud, nothing magical about the words, is that it keeps me from falling asleep. When you pray out loud, and sometimes you may see me down here, I'm not speaking in tongues or anything down here, I'm just praying while the song service is going on, because I'm praying out loud because that's just the way I pray because it helps me stay focused on what God is, is doing. And so pray kneeling, pray out loud. Listen to some of the cries of anguish from some of the psalmists. I mean, Daniel is a desperate man. He's a passionate man, just like the psalmist. Psalm 63, 1. Listen to the passion, the angst almost, if you will, of the psalmist here. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you see his passion? Do you see his desperation? Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So why do we pray? Because God is sovereign, and the scriptures inform our praying. How do we pray? We pray with passion. We pray with dependence. We pray with humility. We pray with zeal. We seek the face of the Lord. But thirdly, what are the elements of the prayer? What does the actual prayer look like? Well, what we see here in verses 4 through 19 is the actual prayer of Daniel. And from this, we see three things about this prayer, three elements of this prayer. So let's read this and let's look at the actual elements of the prayer, the actual characteristics, the actual parts of the prayer that I think will help us in our praying as well. How does Daniel organize this prayer? So let's start out in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. By walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servants of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been been done anything like that that has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem. And your people have become a byword among all around us. Now therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you see the passion in this prayer? the desperation? Let's look at three aspects of this prayer. First of all, the first thing we see in this prayer is adoration, praise, worship. Look at how he starts in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Look in verse 9. It says, to you, O Lord, belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 14, it says, therefore the Lord um, is righteous. How does Daniel start his prayer? Praise, worship. You're a great God. You're an awesome God. You're a mighty God. This is almost how every prayer in the Bible starts. Almost every recorded prayer you look in the Bible, it doesn't start with your laundry list of things you want God to do. It doesn't even start with your own sin. You come before God and you say, God, you're awesome. God, you're great. God, you're powerful. God, you are mighty. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says the same thing. Start your prayers with the holiness of God, the power of God, the praise of God. Come before God in worship. Come before Him in praise and adoration. And this helps us get into a posture of of not making God our cosmic Santa Claus or our genie in a bottle. We don't come before God and try to get Him to do all these things we want to do. We come before God and say, You are awesome. You are great. You are powerful. You are sovereign. You are loving. You are merciful. I'm coming to get a relationship with you and just to be in your presence. 
So let's get real practical here. How do you begin your prayers? You begin your prayers with praise. Now, what did I say earlier? Your prayers are informed by the Bible. So you need to make sure that what you're praying is accurate of who God is. So let's do an exercise right now, okay? Look at verse 4. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, how would you do this? How would you pray this? I'm going to take you through a little process here. How does Daniel start his prayer? O Lord, great and awesome God, who, love, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There are so many things you could begin your prayer with right there after reading the scripture. You could begin your prayer with, O God, great and awesome. And then a lot of us just stop right there, don't we? O God, great and awesome. O God, you're loving. But how do you take it a little deeper? Do you stop and think, God, how have you been great and awesome? How have you loved me this week? How have you shown your love to me? God, you've shown your love to me in this way. God, you're awesome in this way. God, you're great in this way. And then you begin to to get deeper into the praise, deeper in the worship than just kind of going real quickly and saying, God, you're a great God. Okay, let me get to my list. You spend time there in worship and praise. Okay, but the second thing after worship and praise that, 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 that Daniel begins to do here is he moves on to confession. A confession of sin. And actually, from verses 5 through 14, that's his one huge long confession. And in verse 5, we see the beginning of that. He says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments. And all through this, he just begins to confess his sin. He doesn't gloss over the sin. He doesn't hide it under the carpet. He gets real with God. He gets very specific with God. He uses words like wickedness and rebellion and turning away. And let me just say this. Confession needs to be very specific. A lot of times we just throw out blanket prayers, don't we? Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Which is okay, but we need to confess specific sins. What Daniel does there, he confesses specific sins. Now let me say something about forgiveness and confession because I think sometimes there's some confusion when we pray. As a Christian who has trusted Christ for salvation, had all your sins washed away, past, present, and future. When you pray, you do not ask God to forgive you of your sins because that's already happened. On the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. You have a clean slate. You are in a state of forgiveness. So you don't really necessarily ask God to forgive you because he's already done that. But what you do is you confess that sin. See, there's a difference between confession and asking for forgiveness. What does confession mean? Confession in the New Testament comes from two Greek words, homologeo, which means to say the same thing. In other words, confession means you agree with God that what you've done is sinful. Now, you're not receiving forgiveness in the sense that God is somehow wiping your sins away. That's already happened on the cross. But when you confess specific sins, what you're doing is basically saying, God, I know I've sinned against you. God, I know I've gone against your rules here. God, I know I've broken your heart here. We acknowledge our sin. We get it out in the open. We don't hide it. We just come clean with God and say, God, I'm calling sin what it is, and I'm being very specific. And notice some of the specific sins that Daniel confesses. I mean, in verse 6, he says, we haven't listened to the prophets. Our generation didn't listen to the prophets like Jeremiah. Newsflash. Why is Daniel and his generation in Babylonian captivity in the first place? Because during Jeremiah's time, 
70 years earlier, his parents and grandparents didn't listen to Jeremiah. They put him in jail. They, they, they wanted to kill him because Jeremiah said, repent, repent, repent. You got time. God is gracious. Repent. They didn't listen. They were disobedient. They were thrown into exile. And, and Jeremiah is saying, I'm confessing the sin of my grandparents who didn't listen to you. And then in verse 11, he talks about the law of Moses, how they broken the law of Moses. Back in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about how if they disobeyed, they would be taken into exile. And he realizes that God has every right to punish them. God has every right to be mad at them. And then notice what he says in verse 13. He says, we did not entreat the favor of the Lord. We didn't turn from our iniquities. In other words, they didn't repent. They didn't seek grace. Let me just say something a little bit about grace here and about prayer. If we're not careful, when we confess sin, we can focus way too much on the sin and not much as much on Jesus. Yes, we confess sin. But if you are morbidly confessing sin and overconsumed with your sin and grieving over your sin to the point that it makes you look upon yourself and you're beaten down, that is not true confession. True confession for the Christian, yes, we confess that sin, but it always leads us back to the cross. It always leads us back to grace. It always drives us back to the power source of Christ. Robert Murray McShane said this, for every look at self, take 10 looks at the cross. John Newton, the famous slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, he was at the end of his life, he was on his deathbed, and some guy came up to him and said, yeah, you're a wicked slave trader. What do you think God's going to let you into heaven because you've done all these wicked things in your life? And John Newton there on his deathbed said, yes, I've done some wicked things some really bad things, but I've got a far greater Savior and His grace is far greater than anything I've ever done. Tim Keller said this. He says, I am more flawed and sinful than I ever dared believe, but in Christ I am even more loved and accepted than I ever dared imagine. You see, confession needs to be specific. You need to get real with God, but it should ultimately lead you to the cross. It should lead you to receive that grace again, to, to bask in God's saving work, to realize that you're a child of God. He's accepted you, and, and Christ loves you. First John 1 John 1.8, this is a promise. If we confess our sins, he is unfaithful, and he's really mean, and he's not going to forgive us of our sins, and he's going to keep us in a state of dirtiness, right? Ooh, Sean just twisted the scriptures. I hope you caught that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. Okay, so we've seen the, 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 the first two elements of the prayer. It starts with praise, adoration. It goes to confession. And then the third thing, it goes to the actual petition. He's actually asking God to do something. We see the actual request, if you will. Verses 15 through 19, we find the request. And then in verse 15, he kind of reminds God, God, you brought these people out of Egypt... I know you can do it for us. He realizes that God was faithful in the past. He can be faithful in the future. But listen to the words that Daniel uses, okay? It's it's kind of dramatic if you think about it. Verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant. Verse 18, incline your ear. Here, open your eyes. Verse 19, hear, forgive, pay attention, act, delay not. Oh my God, all these things. And it sounds like Daniel's like just slamming God with these requests. And you have to step back and say, Daniel, are you being a little overpressuring God? Seems like you're kind of getting in God's face. Seems like you're kind of demanding some things of God. You're pretty intense there, Daniel. And so let me ask you, is there ever a time in your life when you can be that intense with God? 
And before you answer that question, go back and read the Psalms because there's a lot of psalmists that got in God's face and asked God to do some things. So we've got to wrestle with this. Is there anything wrong with just going to God and pleading your case and saying, God, act. God, move. God, do something. God, I'm desperate. I've been praying for this for months. God, if you don't do something, I am desperate. God, please, now. Is there anything wrong with doing that? Before you answer that question, let's look at the fourth big issue. The basis for Daniel's prayer. I think the whole key to this prayer is in verse 18. Verse 18 unlocks the key to this entire prayer. Because at first we can be saying, Daniel, you're being a little pressuring to God. You're being a little over, over, um, over anxious here. But look at verse 18. Notice what he says. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolations. The city that's called by your name. And then look at this last phrase. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It's all in perspective. Daniel understands God Daniel understands himself. So what's Daniel doing? Daniel's basically at the end of the day saying this. God, I don't bring anything to the table. God, I am desperate. Uh, You don't have a right to answer these requests of me. I can't manipulate you. I cannot demand you. I cannot twist my arm. In fact, the only thing I bring to the equation is my sin, my hopelessness, my despair. I cannot offer you anything, God. I can't come to you and say, God, look at my resume. God, answer this prayer because I'm so good. Answer this prayer because I'm such a good person. Answer this prayer because I'm so faithful. Answer this prayer because, after all, God, I'm your man. I've interpreted dreams. I've stood up to the king. I've been thrown in the lion's den. God, you're somehow bound to answer my prayers because I'm such a good person. We can never appeal to our goodness in order for God to answer our prayers. What does he say? The only thing that I can appeal to is your great mercy. God is not obligated to ever answer one single prayer we pray. And God is not obligated to move and hop exactly when we say hop or jump. But what does it say about God, the heart of God? It's because of your mercy great mercy mercy means god gives us what we don't deserve god gives us grace god gives us help he is a heavenly father who loves us and loves to give good gifts to his children and god will always give you what is best notice i didn't say god will always give you what you want god may not give you what you want but god will always give you what is best so here's the bottom line when it comes to praying here let me just say this i think it is totally appropriate for you to cry out to god and ask him to move ask him to act i mean you you can't not look at this prayer you can't look at the prayers in the psalms and say we can't just get before god and say god do this please i don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as we have the attitude that god's not obligated to answer and that here's the bottom line at the end of the day here's how your prayer should be two things should be at the bottom line of all your praying lord What would bring the most glory to you? Number one. And number two, Lord, what would conform me most to your son? That's what I want. Not what I think I need, not what I want, not necessarily what I have all arranged, but number one, what brings you the most glory and what's going to make me look more like Jesus? Those are the two things at the end of the day I want. So you can wrestle, you can pray, you can cry out to God, you can say, God, why? Why aren't you doing this? God, move now, act now, do it for your namesake. Do it, do it, do it. But the bottom of your heart, the back of your mind, you need to realize that God does these things, not because you somehow deserve them, 
but because he wants to do those because he loves you and he is a heavenly father. Now, I'm going to take us through an exercise this morning to make it very practical. How do you get to an end of a message like this and say, okay, go out and pray, be a better prayer? Well, that would probably leave you feeling guilty because the moment you walk out of here and you fail, you'll be like, oh man, I messed up again. I might as well just not even pray. How many of you have ever done that before? You, you fail at something and you think, man, I messed up. I'm just not going to do it again because all I'm going to do is just mess up again. No, the answer is to keep doing it, but realize there's grace available. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take you through an exercise to teach you how to pray. We're going to do adoration. We're going to do confession. We're going to do petition. Now, don't worry, you're not going to have to do anything out loud. It's all going to be in your seat where you're sitting, okay? But with an open Bible, with your Bible open, I want you to look at verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I want you, in the next few moments together, as a church, we're going to go into a time of prayer. And here's what I want you to do. Focus on at least one of those attributes. It's your choice. Whether it's God's love, his faithfulness, his awesomeness, his power, his great and awesome God, whatever attribute you're drawn to, in the next few moments, I want you to spend just a few moments in focused prayer, and all I want you to do is just to praise God for that one attribute and start thinking about the way he's done that in your life, the way he's done that in the past. How has God been great and awesome or loving? So let's do this. Let's bow our heads. And you can even have your eyes open while you're praying if you want. There's nothing, you know, in the Bible that says you have to have your eyes closed. I sometimes pray with my eyes open so I can look and see what's there. But let's just spend a few moments silently in adoration, praising God. So let's just spend some time praising God. You just spend some time where you are just praising, worshiping, basking in the greatness and glory and love of God. You can maybe even think about the songs that we sung this morning and use the words of the song to inform your praying as well. Okay, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to move into a time of confession. And so here's what I'd like for us to do is Spend time confessing one specific sin in your life that you know that you're struggling with. Instead of beating yourself up for it, confess it, own it, get it out there, but then bask in the forgiveness that comes from the cross. So confess a sin that you're dealing with in this moment of quietness. Go into a time of confession.
Okay, now let's move to petition. Spend some time asking God for something. Maybe there's something you're struggling with in your life. Maybe there's something you want God to do. There's a specific prayer request that you just really are burdened by. It's okay to ask, knowing that God's not obligated to ask because of anything you bring to the table, but because of his great mercy and his great character. And he's always going to do what's best, not maybe the way you want it. So let's just spend some time. Maybe there's just one thing that you're struggling with this morning. Go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him, petition him, knowing his faithfulness. Father, as we bow before you this morning, we want to take this prayer of Daniel and make it real in our own lives. We want to pray with an open Bible, seeing you on the pages and how you've revealed yourself to us. And we've got a text right here that says, great and awesome. We want to just worship you for being a great and awesome God. We want to be desperate. Our attitude of prayer to be humble and desperate and pleading. And Lord, we want to be those that are real, that confess our sins, realizing that, yeah, our sins are covered in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. We just own up to those sins and confess them and agree with you that they are sins. And it drives us back to the cross to see your amazing grace, Jesus. We know that you have power in your cross. There's power in the gospel. There's hope. There's redemption. We don't have to feel defeated. We don't have to feel despairing in our prayer lives. And Lord, it's okay for us to ask. Lord, in a room of three, two or 300 people, there's so many requests that probably bounced up to you. The amazing thing to me is you heard them all at one time. And all the millions and billions of people around the world that are praying, you hear them all at the one time. And so Lord, whatever people are struggling with in this room, whether it's a family issue or a financial issue or a health issue, or a relationship issue, or a major life decision, or whatever it is that you're, uh, they're struggling with, I pray that you would give them what is best. And I know you will, Father. And help us all to have the attitude that, Lord, we don't deserve you to answer us. We can't give you our resume and say, look how good we are. That you're obligated to somehow answer our prayers. No, we come to you, God, because of your great mercy. And we are so thankful, Father, that you are a merciful God. Your mercies are new every morning. Your love is overwhelming. May we receive mercy in our time of need. Hebrews 4.12 says, Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive grace in that time of need. There may be many here in that time of need that just need grace. May they approach your throne boldly through Christ to receive that grace. Lord, let this be a powerful pattern of prayer in our lives that we may look at this prayer of daniel and say man that's something i can use i can i can see his passion i can see his desperation i can i can do adoration i can do confession i can do petition i can i can have the humble attitude and lord we all know it comes back because of your mercy and your grace 
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask the praise team to go into a time of leading us to sing All I Have is Christ. And I'm just going to have them sing it while you're still in an attitude of prayer with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And as they sing these lyrics and you think about it, just spend some more time in praise and worship. Maybe you you didn't get done what you needed to get done this morning in prayer. I want this just to be an opportunity for some closure this morning. So let's go before our great Christ and find hope in Him as our praise team leads us. I once was lost in darkest night Yet thought I knew the way The sin that promised